The facilitator put up a slide that discussed the characteristics of white supremacy, things like individualism, objectivity, what was called worship of the written word, perfectionism, even a right to comfort. Today, I sit down with Paul Rossi, a former teacher at Grace Church School in Manhattan, New York. Last year, he made waves when he published the viral article, I Refuse to Stand By While My Students Are Indoctrinated. They were doubting their own perceptions and implanting this worldview about how limited we are as individuals based on our social identities. I found that to be really the most disturbing thing. Since leaving Grace Church School, Paul has become an activist exposing woke ideology being implemented in schools. Tonight, he breaks down how it works and how to identify the red flags. They're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. These private schools in particular pay millions of dollars. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Paul Rossi, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's great to be here. Thank you. Paul, it's been almost a year since you wrote uh, what ended up being a very popular op-ed, uh, I Refuse to Stand By While My Students Are Indoctrinated. And shortly thereafter, uh, you left uh, Grace School. Why don't you kind of remind us what actually happened uh, from your perspective and what prompted you to write this, this piece? I had been teaching math uh, at Grace for nine years. I started in 2012 when the high school opened. The school started on a progressive platform, essentially, but gradually became more infused with critical social justice ideology, and it started to impact a broader sense of the curriculum uh, and the lives and the, the, the community. The school d decided to have a Zoom session for uh, white students and faculty only. And it had a parallel session for uh, BIPOC students and faculty only. BIPOC stands for Black and Indigenous People of Color, Black or Indigenous People of Color. And the content in those meetings, I found out later, was very different. But I was in the white identifying session. Um, in that session, which was supposed to be about helping students cope with the pandemic, helping them cope with their um, relationships with their peers and trying to get all their work done if they're stuck at home, that kind of thing, turned into a session about white supremacy. And the facilitator, who was very nice and you know, actually talked with us afterwards, uh, put up a slide that discussed the characteristics of white supremacy. And um, they included certain things that I felt um, were not helpful. Um, and I questioned it openly in the meeting with about 200 of my colleagues and students there. So some of the characteristics included things like individualism, objectivity, um, what was called worship of the written word, perfectionism, um, even a right to comfort, which I thought was interesting in a session that was supposed to be about uh, managing um, students' well-being, self-care. Uh, and as this facilitator showed us these characteristics, she said, now, many of you may feel um, strange looking at these things on the slide. You may experience white feelings. I just didn't know what a white feeling was. So I you know, pressed unmute on the Zoom, and I said, you know, what is a white feeling? Uh, now, everything, every session that we had had in the school up to this, no one had openly questioned these beliefs that were being presented as knowledge. And I had seen many of the students go along with these things, even though I knew many of them had doubts about it. So what I was trying to do, I was looking for an opportunity, frankly, where I could, I could model for the students that it was OK to doubt these things and to, to, to doubt openly uh, about their validity. But I don't think that the students who doubted felt you know, that they could question these things openly in, in, a, in what was for us a public setting with most of the community. Um, I was pleased because it created a, uh, a, helped to create an environment where people started asking questions. So students started asking more questions, teachers started questioning it, and it seemed to be sort of on the verge of a, you know, an actual discussion was going to break out about whether these things were true or not. 
and that was what I wanted. Um, and then after the meeting, there were meetings about the meeting. I was called on the carpet by my administration. I was told that I had created harm. One of the questions I asked in that meeting was, to what extent do I, as a supposedly white person, must I identify with how society sees me, right? If, if race is a social construct, um, what degree does an individual have to adopt those visions, that ver version of themselves as part of their identity. And what I was trying to do there was, maybe the answer is 100%. Maybe we don't have any control over our identities based on how others see us. But maybe it's 80%, maybe it's 20%, but I wanted to put it out there so the kids could think about it. Um, you know, I lean more towards 30%, uh, but I didn't want to say that. I just wanted people to think about it, that's all. So. Um, that was seen as denying my race and in turn denying the race of the BIPOC students who were not there, minimizing their lived experience, minimizing their identities in our society and causing serious grievous harm um, merely by asking the question. I was accused of, by the administration of harming not only the students, but their families, their ancestors, uh, of co and of not um, helping the greater good and the higher truth. Are you the only person in this school that was thinking this way? No. <laughs> no. no, there were others. Um, I'd had many one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, more than a handful, with colleagues in many departments, not just math. Um, and there were, sometimes they took the form of, well, you know, I, I this is going a little too far. Um, I wouldn't go as far as you, Paul, but, you know, I definitely have concerns about this, uh, instrument, say an anti-racist instrument, like the pyramid of racism, mm -hmm. which I had to teach to, um, some of my advisees, which I refused to do. And my concern was really that the kids were, um, clammed up. I mean, they were not in a place where they could articulate these things in any type of group setting. Not just white students, students of color um, from all backgrounds, um, so. You know, you describe a, you know, potentially very problematic thing, this, these kind of two different sessions happening, which presumably had quite different content. Um, what is, why is this indoctrination? That is a big question, I know, yeah, but, but yeah. You, you wrote, I refuse to stand by, and you, yeah. you took this hard position. Why is this indoctrination? Well, to a certain extent, I'm not somebody that thinks that there's never any indoctrination, right? There's always some degree of quote-unquote indoctrination going on. The question is, in high school, which is, that was where I taught, what was happening was explicitly a political indoctrination that was based around the idea of a moral imperative a collective morality which focused on certain maxims like impact regardless of intent was more important, things that, that conflated the difference between physical and um, emotional harm. So the idea that, that you, know, you could grievously traumatize someone for maybe voicing an opinion that was unwelcome or provocative. Uh, and so this created a kind of environment where certain political ideas, politicized ideas, ideas about race, ideas about identity, ideas that align with the left liberal wing of the Democratic Party um, blatantly, ideas about climate change, these were not open to discussion. Or if they were, they were done in a very perfunctory, dismissive way. But what, was, what, is, the, what is the thing that, that you, know, you found the most problematic? I'm sure you have one or a few. I, in addition to math, I also taught a class on persuasion, which was a rhetoric class. So we had a more wide-ranging debates, and one case there was a student who was talking about the riots that occurred after the murder of George Floyd, and he, met, he used the word riot. He said, well, there were, you know, there were riots. Um, and then he was shouted down by three students who said, protest, protest. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 protest. 
So the question isn't were there protests or were there riots? There were both, right? But he was talking about the riots. He wasn't saying there was no such thing as a protest. So that was one example of the atmosphere. There was a general also atmosphere where identity was everything and a certain kind of social identity was everything. So how you were perceived was structurally determinative of your path in life. If you were a black identifying person because you had been black identified by society, therefore you had a certain expectation about how society would treat you and a certain set of strategies in place for how you should you should struggle not only for your own success in life, but for those of, of your tribe, of, of the people who are also black identified around you. And the same for white people. If you were identified as a white person, you benefited from a certain set of anticipated privileges. And that also guaranteed what you could be assumed to know or what you could be assumed to um, want, even even unconsciously. So you could profess to say that, you know, no, I really try to treat people equally based on their personality or interactions um, and a, a, an anti-racist moral schema, but no, actually your biases prevent you from behaving that way. And furthermore, you don't even know what your biases are you need to rely on the experts, the diversity, equity, and inclusion experts to tell you what those are or for a person of color to school you or call you out in certain situations that you may not be aware of. So this was a preemptory form of, of identity that the kids were introjecting into themselves. They were doubting their own perceptions and implanting this worldview about how limited we are as individuals based on our social identities. I found that to be really the most disturbing thing. What happened after you published this essay? Well, I was still working as a teacher for the school, so uh, I had a choice to sign the contract for the next year. Um, and the contract had been revised after I spoke out at the Zoom meeting to say that in order for me to teach another year at the school, I would need to attend restorative justice training um, led by the Office of Community Engagement, which is the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office. And when I asked what that session would entail, what were the things that I would have to do um, what would it mean to participate? I wasn't given any details. I was just told, look, you just need to sign or not sign. We're not going to help you out here. So I didn't sign because I realized if I signed, I would be signing onto something I didn't know um, what it was or how it would be conducted. And if I did sign, it would mean that I was implicitly saying it was okay when I hadn't even been told what harm I had caused. And um, in the four or five days after my article came out, the school um, contacted me and they said, well, since the community is upset with you and they feel harmed by you, we're going to reassign all your classes and why don't you need to stay home and teach um, remotely, but you won't even be able to teach because we've reassigned your classes. So what we're going to do is we're going to say, why don't you participate in this um, task force addressing some of your concerns in your article, which is actually a very creative way of dealing with it. But I, it was a task force where I wouldn't really have direct contact with anyone. I, my only contact would be the assistant head of school. So I've declined to do that either because it was, again, a way of tacitly approving of the policies. And it would essentially just put me in a rubber room for the rest of my you know, teaching contract. So I decided not to do that either. And then as my contract ran out in August, that was it. I was, I was out. Why do you think, you know, of the many number of people that had concerns or have concerns to this day about this curriculum or this, this approach, you're the only one who had something to say publicly? Some of it is the context of my life and, the, and what I can do. Um, I, I, this is my third career. Teaching was not my first or only career. I am 
skilled at other things. Um, I can code a website, I can survive. And I've reinvented myself in the past. There was that where I felt that I could take risks maybe. I didn't know this would happen, but I figured I could maybe, for a higher good, I could maybe do something. The other thing is I don't have any kids. So there are so many teachers that, that see something's wrong, but they have dependents and you know, they need to feed them and house them and they have a duty to them. So um, I felt like I was in a place where maybe because of my personal circumstances, I could take risks that other people it would be harder for them to take. My feeling is that, yeah, you have a duty to your family, but you also have a duty to what's right. You have a duty to the students. And if you feel something, um, you should say something. I've, I've seen people be surprised that this is so prominent in, in private schools because there's no, there's no government involvement. Ostensibly, these, these schools are choosing to take these curriculums, which, you know, why would they, why would they do that? You know, it's, some of it is a, a matter of cover. There are many, many reasons um, in private schools. Some of it is just um, they want to do the moral thing. And since morality is kind of drained out of public life, um, religious schools, some of these schools had religious pasts, but it's been supplanted by a different religion. And that religion is critical social justice. So you know, in their quest to raise ethical and, and, and nurture ethics among their students, they've glommed onto this. So it gives, it, it, it connects them to what's, to a kind of a higher purpose. Even though in practice, I think it does much more harm um, than good. The other part of it is that a lot of these schools are predominantly white schools in the sense that they have more you know, quote unquote, white students than minority students. And a lot of, there, there are serious class issues here. So, and cultural differences, right? So they need some ethos that's going to like blanket over and bind the student body. And, and social justice offers that, where one group of students even, the, you know, sees themselves as oppressors and silences themselves, while another group is, you know, to promote belonging, they call it, you know, is encouraged to, to um, take on a political identity. Um, so that's kind of a very difficult balancing act. And it's going to be interesting to see whether these schools can survive because there, there are inherent, deep, inherent contradictions in that. And, and in the environment of a school, there are, you know, you really cannot voice opposition to this. It's, it's become a kind of totalitarian ideology in these schools. I mean, it strikes me, and this is what others have related to me in all sorts of other settings, it's just very divisive among the students or people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's remarkable is that, you know, kids are great. Like, they'll form friendships even despite this, which tells you that, you know, I think there is something wonderful about youth, with the, you know, that you can form relationships across these boundaries, even though the boundaries are exacerbated. So... Um, I have a lot of hope that you know, this can be overcome, but it's going to take students to do it. I think there's been a lot of involvement from parents and, and some teachers, not many, but ultimately there has to be a kind of student action where they push back against this heavily, heavily identity-driven um, education. You know, I call it seducation, really, because it's, it's seducing people away from the transcendence of what it is to be an individual and getting them to attach to their tribal identities, tribal identities, whether that's race or gender, or these things that, that create sort of group conformity around a certain sense of um, you know, what is, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Um, and so it's really kind of a institutionally sanctioned cliques almost. Uh, and what I'd like to see is to see students say, you know, you know, my identity isn't your business. I'm here to learn to read. I'm here to get skills. I'm here to learn to, you know, uh, do math and calculus and algebra and all the things that are going to help me in life and help the people I love. 
I'm not here for, to, for you, to, you know, to be your guinea pig about what identity it is or what gender I am or what my sexual preferences are. And all this stuff is teachers have arrogated unto themselves and administrations have arrogated you know, the power to, to you know, with the moral patina of doing it for the good of the kids, you know, this stuff which is not their business, it's the parents' business. And teachers and administrators need to get out of that business. Um, because it's cheapening, it's, it's warping, it's diminishing the individual. There's a huge debate about that, isn't there? I mean, there's this whole election, right, in Virginia that was basically, yeah. you know, the, the, I, I think a critical issue in this election was this question, right? Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Um, and it's encouraging. You know, parents know what's wrong. They're not stupid. Um, they know that their kids are being exposed to stuff that, you know, it's not simply about teaching slavery or teaching the history of racism in this country or even the ways that we still have problems with racism. It's about a particular worldview which says that depending on the circumstances of your birth, you have this or that outcome. And that's, you know, that's, gonna, that's a fact. And you can look forward to that based on how you were born into society. And that means that you, you know, if you're a white kid, well, then you are going to, you have this privilege and you have to atone for your oppression. And if you are a black kid, you can expect the whole world to be arrayed against you simply because of the color of your skin. And I think that's evil. And I think parents know it's evil too. And I think that they're doing something about it. A lot of people that are looking at this stuff have questions. There's elements of it that seem like they make sense, like they're attractive. Um, and, you know, Frankly, a lot of people watching this might even wonder, be wondering to themselves, why? Uh, so tell me a little bit about this process, you know, where you kind of became convinced that this is problematic, because initially you didn't necessarily. No, I mean, I, I'm left, I was a left liberal myself. Um, I liked, I wanted these things. I mean, who could be against diversity? Who could be against inclusion? Who could be against even equity, making things, you know, reducing inequality in society? Well, these are not necessarily bad things. Um, but the question is, how is it being implemented and what is happening underneath the pretty words, right? So uh, diversity is actually justifies itself. These experts will justify it saying, well, you know, studies have shown that diversity in corporate environments leads to more creative solutions. Great. Yes, absolutely right. But what they take that, how they use that is they'll say, you know, well, diversity of super, you know, of skin color is actually what the game is here. Um, now, that's great. It's important to give, you know, to have opportunities and, and to improve access. But what it's creating is, a, is an intellectual monoculture where no matter what your skin color, you ascribe to this particular worldview um, around critical consciousness, critical social justice, which is really kind of a it's essentially conflict theory. People say it's Marxism, but it's, it's even bigger than that. It's a conflict theory. Um, and it, and it's, it, is surround, it is essentially that history moves forward um, when the contradictions are reconciled through uh, consciousness of them and struggle between you know, opposites. So um, you know, that's the real agenda here. Um, students are being used as tools for history. The teachers are looking at students and not evaluating, not teaching them to evaluate their ideas based on truth, but based on the marginalized status of the person saying it. So it is often true that history moves forward from the voices of the marginalized, but it doesn't mean that just because you're marginalized you're right, which is, I think, the mess, the implicit message that the kids are, that are internalizing, right? So that you know, if someone is speaking who is of a marginalized group uh, or racialized group, well, then that person has a moral authority that you know I, as a white person, don't possess because I am of an oppressor class, essentially. And so the the process of evaluation of, of what a truth claim is or isn't isn't being conducted along objective criterion, right? So again, you have 
if you want to inst instantiate this ideology, you have to take down ob objectivity as well. So that's all of these things fall into that solipsistic grab bag of the things that you have to um, toss out. Another uh, term that we've been hearing, or there's a, there's a type of education that uh, is called social and emotional learning that you know people have been describing as a kind of like I guess gateway into this or uh, the, the pre-DEI approach or something like this and what are your thoughts on this? Yeah no it's interesting and I, I have um, some familiarity with it I'm not an expert in it by any means but I'll tell you my my thoughts on it uh, it's another way for institutions and the expert class to interpose themselves into the identities of children and to say, let's get to know you. It's important for your health for you to get to know yourself. So we're going to ask you a bunch of questions in order to help socialize you with the other kids, right? Because everyone wants society to get along. So you're going to get to know yourself. You're going to get to know your likes and your dislikes. And we're going to manage that for you. We're going to collect that data. God knows where the data is going to go. You know, there's some things have already come out where that data goes places that the parents don't want it to go. Um, and in the process, we're going to create a healthier, more equitable, more just society. Um, but really, it seems to me it's, it's reducing the individual to a set of preferences, which can be commodified and which can make you a better customer. It can make you more easy to market to. And if you start to think of yourself after taking these questions, well, I like ice cream. You know, and I like, um, you know, and I'm, you know, Colombian and, you know, I am from this part of the world and that informs who I am. And I have my social identity and my personal identity and I have this cluster of labels that I apply to myself. Those labels may help me interact with other kids who see themselves as labels, but it's not going to get me to the transcendent, limitless potential of myself as an individual. Like being is, you know, that's where... Every, all the greatness and joy of life comes from. It doesn't come from a label. Even if I give it to myself, right? That may make me reduce my anxiety or might make me feel better about myself. But really, like the creative, dynamic self, it transcends all labels. And what I, I want you know, the kids to understand that, that your creativity, what makes you special, it doesn't come from some identity which you could fit on an index card. Uh, and I think we've lost that as a culture. We've lost, um, as traditional uh, moralities and religions have sort of been washed out or leached out of society, we have this impoverished view of ourselves that now we're teaching the kids to have that same impoverished view. Um, where you know we could give them marching orders. We could say, well, the world is unjust, and here you go, and here's what you're supposed to do about it. But that's indoctrination. That's not letting them come to their own conclusions or letting them solve their own problems. And some people have described, you know, well, I guess, I guess both things, what some of the teachers are doing and also what ends up being the dynamic among the students as a kind of bullying. Do you agree with that? Yeah, um, it's an imperious, it's a moral imperiousness, right? So if I take it, this idea that there isn't two sides, or if there is two sides, well, one of them is morally superior to the other one. And um, I think that is really dangerous because this idea that you always have, um, there is always a moral thing to do without limiting principle. You remember Barry Goldwater? He said, you know, what, extremism in pursuit of virtue is no vice or something like that. I'm probably mangling the quote. But this idea that, you know, if we are going to stop climate change, everything should be at our disposal because it's an existential crisis. The world's going to end. So when you, when you catastrophize everything, well, then there's no moral solution, you know, which there's no pra practical solution which could have enough costs to outweigh that benefit. So that means, you know, well, we just need to... We, could, we need to cut our industry, we need to cut our oil, you know, who cares what it does to inflation, who cares what it does to jobs, um, you know, and so that's what we see now, I think, with, with Biden, if, you know, if I'm going to get into that realm, but you have this, you have that same logic playing out um, around the extremism of, say, so if I question the riots, 
if I say, well, how, you know, burning down property is wrong. Well, you don't care about black lives, and riots are the language of the unheard, right? So these are just seen as thought, these are really thought-terminating cliches that, that just shut down conversations because the moral purity and the moral clarity of who is good and who's bad is unquestionable. And so if you say, if you even posit the other side of that and say, well, no, actually I care about black lives more than you because I care about everyone who lives in that community. I care about the business owner. I care about you know, the services they provide. I care about the schools and I care about you know, the, the infrastructure. And if you, if you burn down property, well then what's gonna happen is no one's gonna invest in that. And it's gonna, well, then someone would say, well, you know, you're just supporting capitalism and capitalism is slavery. So this, it, it cheapens and shortcuts real conversations around these issues which um, limits students, it limits the teachers, it limits discourse, it limits all these things. Um, and it, it ultimately doesn't educate anyone. Well, it strikes me that it limits the creation of reasonable policy, because that, you know, that requires yeah. uh, some, I don't know, th critical thinking, compromise. Um, right, consideration of unintended data. consequences. Yeah. Right, we may mean well, but what's the outcome? Um, well, so that's actually, that's really mm -hmm. interesting too, right? Um, that this idea that it's the outcome that matters, not yeah. the intent, but, but somehow when it comes to actually implementing things, it's only the intent that matters, the outcome doesn't. I, this, this is this, I, I find this dichotomy bizarre somehow. Yeah, the moral's for thee, not for me. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so if I tell you, well, yeah, and you're, you know, you're an oppressor, so your impact matters more than your intent. You may be wanting to do good in this world, but actually you're harming kids, right? Um, and you need to do better. You need to question your biases and really get, you know, get into what's animating you as a white man. And you, know, you need to, in fact, you know, you're even asking about this is really indicative of your fragility, right? I mean, I, there's a whole thing I could, you could go into there, right? I'm sure you're familiar with it. But when it comes to my, if I am the oppressed or I'm speaking for the marginalized, well then my intent is everything, right? What's my impact? Well, you know, sure, maybe I'm hurting the people who have been oppressing, um, but you know, actually I need to double down because really this is, I'm in, for, I'm in it for the greater good. And once, you know, all of these terrible things have been swept away, then the beautiful, glorious future will arrive. So my intent, you know, the impact that you're feeling right now is temporary and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but you'll thank me in the end, right? Because I'm really helping you because you're actually imprisoned by your own biases. And, you know, once you free yourself, you'll be fine, right? So like, the self-justification is limitless. There's that line from C.S. Lewis that, that just comes to mind, which is the people that sort of torture you for your own benefit, something like this. Is, yeah. Uh, that's, those are, those are the, the most difficult to deal with when they, they imagine that it's for your own good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that actually gives you license to, to torture because then you're, you have God on your side, you know. And so that's the most dangerous is when you feel that because of past Impressions or things that have been done to you, well, then excesses that I do, well, that's just you know comeuppance for you, right? And I'm, I'm I actually have the I'm on the side of the angels. One of the things you've been talking about lately that I've been following is that yeah you know, the the way, for example, some of these lessons plans or ideas are presented publicly is really quite different from what actually gets taught or how mm -hmm. it's implemented. So yeah. I, I, uh, I've been watching hundreds of hours of DEI trainings in the past three months just to really understand what's going on under the hood and, and how this matches what I saw. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I wrestle with this stuff. Like, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something here that I'm missing. I keep watching these things over and over, and I, and I come to different conclusions about how it plays out. But essentially what I saw in a, in a training session which was presented by a fourth grade teacher and a fifth grade teacher. And they both talk about how they implement the Black Lives Matter at school curriculum in their school, in their private school. 
And the way they do it, it's, it really reflected back to me what I had seen at my school, which was they will start with the empathy of the child, and they will steer it towards a certain type of collectivist morality, and they will instantiate that morality on an interpersonal level within the classroom, and then they will take that as a foundation for the political ideology or the political position. So I'll give you an example. So the fourth grade teacher in this presentation says, we talk explicitly about restorative justice, and one of the aspects of restorative justice is reparation. And I choose that word very carefully. Reparation is, it's not enough to say you're sorry. You have to repair the harm done. She tells a story about one student stepping on another student's foot and then taking that foot off. And she uses that as an analogy, saying it's not enough to take your foot off. You have to ask the person, do they want ice? Um, you know, can I massage your foot? Because that foot is still throbbing, right? So it's not enough to just say you're sorry. You have to do something about it. Now, that's not a terrible thing on its own, right? There's a grain of truth there, right? Now, it's trivializing it because she says, well, what the kids always say, well, why don't you just take your foot off? Big deal. Um, well, no, it is a big deal. So you take this trivial thing and you say, well, there's harm here. Um, and the harm, restoring that harm never ends. So it makes everyone in the group responsible for everyone else's happiness, which is a total collectivist morality, right? So if someone's harmed, well, well who harmed you? Okay, you harmed him? Well, you have to restore you know, that person's well-being, right? So we're all responsible for everyone else's well-being, um, which is okay maybe to some extent, but there's a limit to that, right? Where's the limit? Um, and so what happens with the fifth grade teacher is they say, well, once they've instantiated that vocabulary reparation, then we can have a debate about why we need to have reparations for slavery. Reparation, what actions are taken to repair the harm? How am I repairing the harm every single day? Harm doesn't get better one time. Harm needs to get better over time. I use the words consequence and reparation because language is important. They need to start to hear the language so that when they get to Carl and Carl says, oh, we're gonna have a debate on why we need to have reparations for slavery in America. It's not that he's not teaching them this meeting because they've already internalized what a reparation is. They fundamentally know reparation has to be with making something better over time. One of the ways that we do this is also with reading. So we have done front desk this year, um, and one of the characters, Hank, is arrested for a crime he didn't complete, and he's vindicated. And the police officer comes to say he's no longer being charged. And the police officer says, well, what can I do? And he says, well, you can be better. And at this point, my fourth graders have had this for several months. And they said, that's a horrible response. All right, let's talk about this. Why is it a horrible response? And they go through, there's no real change. There's no reparation. He's not doing anything. And so my fourth grade is already starting to like get into this idea of how, do I, how does society not help each other? Okay, so the word is, the morality is, is instantiated, the vocabulary is implanted, and then they discuss why, and they said this in this particular way, we're going to debate about why, not whether or not, or how, or in what way, but why, which means once you know that it's reparation is a moral good, you know, regardless, well then that's not much of a debate, is it, right? Well, reparations are good, and some people don't want to give reparations, and some people do. Well, we know reparations are good, so of course we want to give reparations. Right? No, nothing about the limiting principle, nothing about the moral hazard, right? Can anyone claim harm? Well, if someone claims harm, does that mean that they're entitled to redress? Uh, to what extent? Are there unintended consequences? Who, who's going to give that? Are, you know, the people who are going to pay that um, didn't do any of the bad things themselves. Um, and many of, their, many of those people don't have ancestors that did the bad things. So, and everyone's going to pay this, and who's going to get paid? And all those questions never come up. It's just a moral good, and it's implanted at the level of emotion. 
that's the most powerful level. So that's, you know, that's what people remember, I think. That's what lasts. And that's why my focus is on the early years, the earliest grades, because that's where they connect to the morality. So where does this 100 hours, as you say, of, of curriculum come from? This a lot, right? You... Yes, there are conferences that, I've, that have been leaked, that I've had access to, that people have shared with me. Um, and so there is a lot there. So there's so there's there's these these people that aren't coming forth necessarily publicly, but privately they're feeding you right, the things right. they want exposed. And then when I write about yeah. it, they shut it down. They shut down those things. So now you, those things are not available publicly. So they're mm. trying to hide it because they know that public scrutiny is bad for it. So you know this is one of the kind of side effects of of uh, COVID or like maybe silver linings, right? Is that mm -hmm. and I've heard this story again and again and again is parents just kind of, you know, wandering around and listening, hearing what is being taught to their kid via Zoom or whatever, and suddenly being like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what was yeah. that? Huh? <laughs> right. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting, right? So there's this whole, like, there's, there's this whole movement, and it's, you know, like the equivalent of, you know, police have body cams, the equivalent for schools, so parents can actually see what teachers are doing. Yeah. It has its own potential problems, right? Because you sure. know, now you know you're being micro scrutinized by parents as a teacher. You're, I'm you're, on the side yeah. of the parents, but I don't know whether you know cameras in the classroom is a good idea. Right. You know, cuz I don't know how I that would be very difficult as a teacher to teach under that right. scrutiny, right? Maybe it works the other way, right? Because maybe some parents who are very hyper attuned to social justice would really not like they would they would know my beliefs and they would be you know, ready to pounce if I said the slightest thing. So I don't, I don't think that's going to work, but I think it's important to, I think transparency bills are important. I think those are good. Okay. Yeah. There is this, the public face of this, this education, which you dispute maybe even this education, I mean, what's actually taught is, is, is different. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, this, how, how can parents you know, deal with that. If let's say they are given a desk lesson plan, is that the real lesson plan, or is it? Okay, to, well, let's does say it just get, get scrubbed, right? Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. that's it's not a panacea, right? Because the mm -hmm. teachers can lie, and teachers will lie, and they do that because they're on the side of the angels, so they know better than the parents. So there's again, there's there's no moral humility there. Um, they're going to say, well, their parents are all white supremacists anyway, so we'll just tell them something, or we'll be very generic in the syllabus, and we'll teach what is something else in class, and that's right. Like, you have to expect that. Um, but it's better than nothing. I mean, at least, at least the parent has something on paper they can ask their child, you know, well, is this what you learned in class? Well, no, it was like more than that. It was like, well, what do you mean, you know? But there's no, there's no substitute for a parent's involvement with the child. There's no legislation, no, you know, silver bullets going to create a relationship with the parent and the child. That's just between the parent and the child. One of the solutions that's been, you know, brandished about, for example, is school choice. You know, having the money follow the student as yeah. opposed to, you know, the system as they call it. What do you think? It's a start, but it's not the answer, because like like I saw, private schools are riddled with this too. So um, we need to see a movement of schools that are classical ed schools. You know, that get back to the basics about how to create independent thinkers with you know a rich understanding of rhetoric and logic how to think for yourself reinvigorate the classics the classics belong to everyone they are not just western civilization okay they're everyone's birthright and to deny those things to people just based on the color of their skin or because the people who said those things don't look like you that's criminal um, these are the things, these are the ideas, these are the thinkers that made our society possible, right? You, you cut people off from that and you cut civilization off at the knees. You cut, our, you cut all the things that, that are the engine of progress, um, you hamstring them. You create a, a situation where they fall apart. Well, but you know what people that are studying, a number of people I've had on the show that are studying, you know, the critical social justice wokeism, you know, very, very closely say, well, actually, that's, that is indeed the purpose. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I tend to think so. I don't, I don't think everyone who teaches it thinks that way, but I think that there are people that openly are 
um, maybe some of the academics and thought leaders in, in it are definitely pushing that. I mean, it's that they're not even hiding it. Um, but I think it's masked by a lot of flowery language that pulls a lot of people in, right? We want a more just, we want a more democratic future. We want collective liberation. The collective liberation is, you know, it's pretty much out there, but you know, this idea that we can make a better society and everybody wants a better society, okay? But it's, they're judging our society, which has its flaws, by some perfect lodestone and they will always find it wanting and it will it has no limiting principle you whatever you wherever in critical consciousness you see a flaw it takes a revolution to undo it so just keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing and break disrupt dismantle decolonize um, these structures right because particularly with critical whiteness studies whiteness is everywhere it's you know it's everywhere it's in the air you breathe it's in every system so that means that if you got to get rid of it well that means you have to take everything apart it's a forever project forever project mm -hmm. yeah and it, it the good thing about a forever project is that you can be paid forever to work on it which is the other part of this is that it's you know it's it's a career these people are not revolutionaries they're careerists they're actually very conservative you know, they, you they profess revolution, yeah. but they're getting, they are part of the whole capitalist system. I mean, they're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. These private schools in particular pay, pay millions of dollars. Um, You're talking about the people who are the DEI. bringing these concepts yeah. to the teachers, into right. the school systems. Right. Yeah, okay. the DEI commissars, or however you want to say. Um, so what about the teachers' colleges? I mean, obviously, you know, your, your, your version of teachers' college was uh, maybe you didn't focus so much on these things, but, but it seems like with there's so many teachers that actively, you know, believe in some, maybe, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's 99%, or I saw some statistics that um, they actually even do a serve, they do a questionnaire where if you're not aligned with critical social justice, well, then you shouldn't be in the program. I mean, it's it's so blatantly out there. Um, so, so I never the, wait, wait, wait. So this is fully baked into teachers' college. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like yeah. all of them. I I don't know. I I saw that at one school. I don't know whether it's in everyone, but certainly ed schools. The idea that you could survive with, you know, doubting these precepts in ed schools, I've never heard of it. I mean, everyone I know who went to an ed school, I never went, myself, I went to a, I did an educational psychology master's. Um, but they're very, very weak in terms of actual, you know, intellectual rigor. And I know that much because in my program, um, I actually delivered my master's thesis at a because I, I did it at an off semester, so I was actually delivering my master's thesis with the ed school graduates. And you know I had done like you know 35 page paper with references and everything, and they had done, maybe it wasn't that long, maybe it was like 25 pages, but what, 30, so with references it was longer. But they had dioramas and poster boards for their final projects, like it was embarrassing. And my, my thesis advisor was like, you don't want to present with them because you'll just make them feel bad. Like they, like, don't. I was like, no, but I want to get done with my program in a year and a half. Why do I need to take two years? Like, I want to get done with it. And they're like, okay, go ahead, but it's going to be embarrassing. Fascinating. I mean, it yeah. also, I mean, fascinating and disturbing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but education, I mean, it's a, it's a noble profession, you know, but, um, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure ed schools are attracting, you know, the most rigorous thinkers that we, that, that we have. Currently, you know, it seems like what you've decided to do uh, is try to figure out how this system works and expose them, right? Looking mm -hmm. at this video, like we talked about earlier, uh, that teaching teachers how to you know, educate using, using this ideology, exposing it. Um, 
what what are others supposed to do in this context? Like, what are you know what 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 should parents be doing? We touched on it a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, I other than communicate with your child, like that's the that's just the essence of per- parenting. I mean, I'm not a parent; I don't have kids, um, uh, but I think that's you know that relationship. That's where the relationship should be. Um, that's where the primary relationship should be, not between the student and the teacher. And very often these teachers will, you know, they're trying to carve out an intimacy. Let's be honest. They're trying to carve out an intimacy with the child where they can foster a certain uh, view of the world, sheltered from what the parent thinks, and even turning the child against the parent uh, you know, and, and against the parents' values. Um, you see this very much with the, with the trans stuff going on. Um, so, right, so there's, there's some states that have, I believe, even legislation that says that if, you know, it's a, a child starts asking questions like mm-hmm. this, you don't tell the parents. Right, right. right. The, and again, the catastrophization that they use to justify it is, well, do you want the child to kill themselves? because that's what's gonna happen. If they don't get the support and affirmation that they need, you're putting their life at risk, right? That's the logic. Um, So that justifies that intimacy, right? Because it's protective. And so that kind of safetyism is also a huge part of this. So as a parent, if you communicate with your child, if you have a good relationship, you let you create fewer entry points for that kind of thing. Just like you would, you know, for any high-risk behavior with a, with a child, right? Don't take candy from strangers. Don't take identity from teachers. You know, you, we need to, parents need to tell their kids, like, if they start asking you questions about your identity and what you like, or do you like boys, or do you like girls, or do you feel like a boy, or do you feel like a girl? Um, if you feel, you know, get them educated on how to look out for that kind of thing and communicate it to parents, um, because that's so much more valuable than, you know, any kind of, even though I think transparency is good, than, than a piece of paper, right? Because once that door closes, that child is, belongs to the teacher, essentially. They, they can tell them anything they want. Um, and they also have lunches, so they'll have affinity groups based around gender and race where the, or ethnicity, where they bring the the child into these little lunch groups and they'll try to foster um, racialized identity, belonging, that kind of thing, gender. And you know, I've seen teacher trainings where the, where the presenters will say, you'll be amazed what a kid does for a bag of hot Cheetos, right? You get them in your office, you get them to tell you your problems, and then you'll have, you'll have a student and then you use that student to build the affinity group. So they tell their friends and they are referred to as boots on the ground. So, the, so you get some kids to be boots on the ground and they go and recruit the other kids. What does that sound like? That's to you, it doesn't sound right to me. This is not an authentic thing. This is something that's being manufactured. Okay, what do you mean by that? So, you know, there are cultural differences in schools. There's no question, right? But the idea of creating a group that's focused around that identity, um, and and to me, in many cases an opposition to other identities, dominant identities in the school. So there's an in-group and an out-group. That thing, and making that happen, and instantiating that, and fostering that, that is very calculated. That is manufactured by administrations and teachers. You know, there's there are things that people have in common. There's no question. But rather than those commonalities developing organically, they are paid for by the school, they are supported by the school, they are invested in by teachers that have an agenda there. Um, All part of the critical consciousness um, program. So, you know, that's what you want to watch out for as a parent is, you know, is my child getting sucked into this are they getting benefit from it? I'm not saying it's not beneficial to some degree, right? It's a way to make friends. It's a way to bond over common things. But that is a gateway to 
critical social justice ideology, right, which is the whole oppositional framework, systemic oppression in society, that they layer on top of that. So you just have to be very careful, right? There, there are kids that do that, and they're fine. There are kids that do that, and they're not fine. They get sucked into something that's a lot more dangerous. What about teachers, you know, teachers that might be wondering about maybe watch this, you know, watch this program are, you know, wondering how they can sort of make a difference without, you know, stepping out and getting fired or, you know, or, or whatever, or maybe do they, or is that what they have to do? It's hard to do without stepping out a little bit. Um, whether that means in your classroom asking somewhat provocative questions or, or not necessarily agreeing um, with, with some of the things that get said. Um, I had a reputation as someone that wasn't necessarily going along with this stuff. So kids would come to me sometimes. I, you know, I was asked to be the advisor of a discourse club. Um, there, was a, there was a student who approached me and said, oh, do you want to you know, start a viewpoint diversity club or discourse club? I was like, sure. Um, when the administration found out that I was the advisor, they gave me a chaperone from the diversity office because they w didn't want me to be alone with the kids talking to them. Uh, because I, they were worried that some kid was going to say something harmful and that I wouldn't shut it down. So they assigned someone. And because this other person was there, no one showed up except the, person, the student who started it. So um, it's, it could be very difficult. Um, but no, definitely. Dare I yeah, say. yeah, exactly. Um, but then, since nobody came, that chaperone went on to other business because he had a busy, was busy doing other stuff. And then once he went away, the kids started to come back, and so he actually had a pretty nice club. Once it was thought to be not an issue anymore, the thing I would say to teachers is don't challenge directly. Don't, well, do challenge, but when the timing is right. Um, and do it, do it for the students. Don't, like, it's difficult. Like, pick your battles, pick your timing, because you may only get one shot. And the other thing to do is to elicit, and, to t and, and for parents to elicit. Don't challenge directly when you're talking to somebody who is a true believer in this, or seems like a true believer. Ask them what they mean. Well, what do you mean by equity? What does that mean? Tell me how you want to, how do you get from point A to B? How are we going to get there? Um, what do you mean inclusion? What do you mean by belonging? What are the limits of belonging? Can you have too much belonging? Can you have too much diversity? What is, what, is it possible to have too much diversity? That's a really challenging question because that says, well, diversity is an unmitigated good, right? There's no such thing as too much diversity. And, and when you have these commitments that are transcendental in their minds to these things that are unmitigated goods, even just asking a limiting question will sometimes reframe, be like, what do you mean? How is that possible? Diversity is good, right? It, but it exposes the lack of a limiting principle. And I guess, and are there options, schooling options that are, that, that, you're aware of? It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Um, privates, publics, it's everywhere. So you go to the website, you look on the, you know, to what extent are they, is there a diversity, equity, and inclusion director? What are the commitments that they're making to that? How are they verbalizing those commitments? Um, look for collaborations with universities because very often the universities will have graduate study programs where they'll send people in to collect data or to push a certain idea, uh, look into that. You really have to do a lot of research on whatever school you're considering, um, private, public, whatever. And then really, to me, the only foolproof method is homeschooling at this point. And then, and then alternately, you know, if your kids are in school, you just need to, you need to keep developing those relationships as best you can. That's yeah. Basically, that's the... That's, that's yeah, the and it can I'm be hard. I know, like to to get an adolescent to talk about what he did at school. I mean, for every twenty questions, you may get one grunt in response. I know, but like, keep at it. Hmm. Final thought. 
<laughs> it's just been great talking to you and uh, talking about some of these things. And I, I, would, I really look, I think about the students and if there's going to be real change, it has to come from the students. It has to come from students who are in the most, you know, it, it's a big ask and they are vulnerable and not maybe only 5% of the students can even entertain challenging this given all the reputational costs that they are subject to. Um, but to just to, to st say to the teacher, I'm not comfortable with you asking about my identity. And I'm not comfortable with you asking me to make assumptions about my classmates' identities. And uh, you know, I appreciate a teacher, but I'm not going to participate in this assignment. Well, Paul Rossi, it's <laughs> such a pleasure to have you on the show. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us this evening for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Yekelek. We reached out to Paul Rossi's former employer, Grace Church School. They did not comment on or dispute any of Paul Rossi's specific allegations, but directed us to a statement published last fall by the school's Board of Trustees and Administration called The Grace Way. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American Thought Leaders. So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American Thought Leaders.